Our fathers, we are again coming before you. We're coming before you as people that were created in your image. But it's a broken image. We've inherited the sin of our forefather, Adam. And as a result of that sinful nature are the sinful works, the sinful actions of this world. We also realize, Father, that according to your time schedule and the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, Jesus Christ. Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. All orchestrated according to the master plan schedule established in eternity past, superintended by our sovereign God. Jesus, who came into this world to die in our place for our sins. Securing at the cross what we ourselves could not secure with our works. That salvation comes exclusively through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So, Father, for any that in these multiple services today come into this building spiritually curious, intellectually curious, but at the same time have not solidified a faith in the exclusive one, Jesus is Lord and Savior. We pray that by the work of your Spirit, not by any clever words, but by the work of your Spirit and by the astounding knowledge that is revealed in your Word by your Spirit, that such people will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. For believers here in these services today, we're praying that there is a deepening and a widening of our understanding of how you relate your word to our world and realize this is really your world. Everything in it, including us. So Father, now as we're exploring this whole matter of the hand of the Lord, What we're asking in these minutes together is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 20 years ago where I found myself in a bookstore paging through a volume entitled Gifted Hands by Dr. Benjamin Carson, famed neurosurgeon. And there was a phrase that stood out then and still stands out to me today as there is an anniversary of this book that has now hit the markets. Where he had written, I became acutely aware of an unusual ability, a divine gift, I believe, of extraordinary eye and hand coordination. It is my belief that God gives us all gifts, special abilities that we have the privilege of developing to help us to serve him and humanity. And the gift of eye-hand coordination has been an invaluable asset to me in surgery. This gift goes beyond eye-hand coordination. 
encompassing the ability to understand physical relationships and to think in three dimensions. When I first came across those thoughts some 20 years ago, I jotted them down off to the side of my scriptures, and I was struck by the eye-hand coordination of Ezra chapters 5 and 6. Because in Ezra chapter 5 verse 5, you and I are told, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And here in verse 6 of the 7th chapter, you and I are told, the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So what you and I are about to see is the spiritual eye-hand coordination of the sovereign God who is weaving together his purposes according to his plan and all for his glory. Now, what I want to do this morning with you is we're looking at the confusing times in which we live, and maybe you feel as though your life right now is filled with confusion in the midst of these confusing times. What I'd like to do with you is to draw three significant involvements that are found here in these 28 verses that pertain to the way in which this eye-hand coordination is operative in your life and my life as well. We're going to focus today on the head, and last week it was upon the eye. And verses 1 through 10, I want you to notice first with me how the hand of God is involved here in our understanding, our understanding of God's word. You pick it up in verse 1, and I want you to see the way in which you can identify with, connect with, relate to Ezra. Because in Ezra chapter 1, or rather chapter 7, verse 1, you're told, now after this, after the first return of the Jews back to Jerusalem, out of Babylon, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, here's Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and if you take it all the way down to verse 5, you can link him back to Aaron, the chief priest. And I studied that, and I looked up some of these people, and I asked, practically speaking, what can we learn from a genealogy that lists 16 names? I'm sure he didn't do Ancestor.com here. This was truly guided by the Holy Spirit as he's tracking back. What can we learn? I believe it's this. You nor I should waste our spiritual heritage. If you come out of a background where parents and grandparents trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior and tried, imperfectly though they may well have tried, to impart this understanding to you and to me, never waste what God wants us to invest. We're not to waste our heritage. We are to invest our heritage. Now you say, but Gary, I come out of a secularist background. 
man, I have enough trouble finding, now that I've come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, where Genesis is in my Bible. I get that. In fact, for many years, I ministered in a highly secularized setting between Yale and Harvard universities. I get that. But don't waste your secular experience either. Because you have something then to offer those that have a secular worldview. That this is not a world that operates according to chance. Nor is it a world that operates according to mechanistic fate. But there is this invisible hand guiding and directing the events through the ages for his ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. Now here is Ezra, a second application point. He was in Babylonia. He was not in his religious Bible belt of Jerusalem. He was far removed. And yet what you find here is that he is investing himself, even though he was well-trained and could have leaned upon his prior education and gone no further in his own personal investigation of God's word. He continued to discipline his mindset, his heart, in the word of God. So should you and so should I whether you attended Christian schools or secular schools, no matter whether you are near or far from a religious comfort zone, what we've got to do is to continuously invest ourselves in eternal truth that relates to these changing times. So here you have it now, two significant application points, really out of a genealogy of verses 1 down to verse 5 that pertain to your heritage, number one, and pertain to your location, number two, all of which is critically important here to understand the significance of what, El- what this man Ezra is all about in verse 6. This Ezra. He went up from Babylonia, as it appears on the screen. Notice the description here. I want to camp on a particular word. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Mark that word skilled in your Bible. It carries within the original language the idea of to move rapidly through the terrain. In other words, what God is saying with regard to Ezra is that he so disciplined himself spiritually, he was able to move rapidly through the terrain of the Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, on and on you go with it. He became familiar with the paths of the scriptures. He could become a tour guide for others that needed a guide through the scriptures, which is what you and I need to do to equip ourselves in increasingly biblically illiterate culture. Here's a man that could move rapidly through the word of God, but I want you not to overlook the inspiration of the Holy Spirit found in this. Because there in the heart of verse 6, he was a scribe skilled in the law of the Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. This was from God, not from humanity, you see. That stands out. 
it stood out to such a degree, and I want you to notice how God had positioned this believer in the secular political courts of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And Persia, interestingly enough, was acknowledged throughout history as one marked by religious tolerance. That's why Zerubbabel in chapters 1 through 6, and now Ezra in 7 through 10, would be permitted by this monarch to return with exiles back to Jerusalem. The king granted him all that he asked. He courageously went before this political leader, asking for he likewise to bring a group on a Jerusalem tour, I guess, only permanent, back to Jerusalem. What is behind all of this? Here's your answer, and you underline it in verse 6. For the hand of the Lord, his God, you see. was on him. Now here is a man who is courageous. He's got a tremendous vision of the way in which God can use him and will use him. And though even though he's not in the comfortable Bible belt at Jerusalem, but rather on the outskirts of Babylonia, and furthermore, though trained in, as his ancestors were in the word of God, he had to make it relevant in his own personal experience. Here's a man whose venturesome is marked by vision. And that outstanding book on leadership, and if you buy only one on spiritual leadership, go for the very title, Spiritual Leadership, by J. Oswald Saunders. He wrote of Dr. Moe of Sydney, Australia, in these words. It was a mark of Dr. Moe's greatness that he was never behind his age or too far ahead. He was up at the front and far enough in advance to lead the march. He was always catching sight of new horizons, not looking back at the old ones. He still had a receptive mind for new ideas at an age when many were inclined to let things take their course. That man was greatly used of God, Dr. Moore was, in Australia, impacting countless people for the cause of Jesus Christ. What you and I have to do then is we match our vision with God's word. Like Psalm 45, verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to whom? To the king. Think Ezra here. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe, as was Ezra, skilled in the law of Moses. But he understood that the hand of the Lord was guiding him in his understanding of the word of the Lord. Do you remember the story? man entered a jewelry store owned by a friend. And his friend showed him this incredible display of diamonds and other stones as well. And among the variety of stones, there was one that, that caught his eye because it seemed to lack luster. 
And pointing to it, he said to his jeweler friend, this thing has no beauty at all. But then the jeweler took that stone, placed it in the hollow of his hand, shut his hand. And then in a few moments, he opened it again. And incredibly, the entire stone, we're told, gleamed with the splendors of the rainbow. The biographer goes on to ask the question, what have you done to it? The jeweler responded, this is an opal. It is what we call a sympathetic jewel. It only needs to be gripped within the hand to bring out its beauty. Now what God has done here is that he has brought the invisible hand of sovereignty into the life experience of Ezra. And what God is doing in orchestrating events globally and nationally and locally and personally is that he operates with this invisible hand, the eye-hand coordination of sovereignty. His eye, he not only watches us, he watches over us. His hand. He not only works for us, he works through us. And you might say, I've just gone through some incredibly difficult days, weeks, months, years. Watch the eye-hand coordination of the Sovereign One. And what he's able to do. You're an opal, just ready to be used for his glory. There you have it. And so in verse 7, there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, an unbelieving leader, political leader, pluralistic, emphasized tolerance as part of his political philosophy, the king. Now notice the phrase, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, not all of them, some stayed back, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the seventh month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, mark this, For the good hand of his God was on him. Now, because of sovereignty, does that mean there's no sense of human responsibility? Check out verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, you see. As should you and as should me. Pause. What a tremendous challenge for people involved in Christian education in the ministries of this church. 
What a tremendous challenge for people that oversee adult Bible fellowships or life groups in this church. Tremendous challenge for those involved in youth ministries, Awana ministries, good news clubs, the wide range of complexities that this church is involved in. But here's a man not resting on his religious heritage. Here's a man that was continuously personally schooling himself. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. But it's not mere academics. And to do it, you see. And to teach his statutes, rules in Israel. So now, verses 1 through 10. There's your first involvement. You want to note with me how the hand of the Lord is involved here in our understanding of God's word. But now, second of all, I want you to note with me how the hand of God is furthermore involved in our understanding of God's world. Verses 11 down through verse 26. Now, what captures my attention is that at this point in the original languages, it shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic. Why? Well, the reason is, is that Artaxerxes was writing in the political language, the commercial language of the day. This is how you communicated over the wide scope of his, of his kingdom. The Hebrews were just one ethnic group of his overall kingdom. But the commercial language was Aramaic. So now, beginning in verse 11, down through verse 26, this is from Aramaic being translated, if you have the English Standard Version, other versions, into English. Where this is a copy of the letter that Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in many matters, in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. Pause. The same God that was orchestrating events in Egypt where God positioned Joseph to rise up politically to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, the same God who would eventually raise up Moses to be politically astute as to how to move in and out of the political quarters of Egypt. The same God who in Persia would raise up an Esther to strategically protect her people from annihilation. The same God who in New Testament times would utilize a Pontius Pilate and a Herod as part of the strategy to get Jesus to the cross, while previous God had sovereignly superintended over Caesar Augustus, an unbelieving leader of the Roman Empire, regarding getting everybody to their hometowns, including Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem for the birth of their child, Jesus Christ, according to the promise delivered in Micah chapter 5 that is found eight centuries prior to the actual happening. That's your God. 
And this hand that is operating, though invisibly, yet practically, does so globally, does so personally. You pick it up now as it appears on the screen in verse 14. This is Artaxerxes in his decree. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. He doesn't say his God, your God, which is in, note the irony, which is in your hand. You see, Ezra is in God's hand, while God's word is in Ezra's hand. And likewise, what you and I need to be able to understand is that this invisible hand operating, invisible yet involved, say it again, invisible yet involved, is such that while you and I are in God's hand, God's word needs to be in our hand, and we're examining it not relying upon what we've learned from the past, but continuously studying it as it relates to the present. In verse 15, God is so sovereignly involved here that he has protected and preserved the silver and gold that had been taken away from the temple of Jerusalem after all those years. Now Ezra has been given the opportunity to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. This is an unbelieving king, yet he's freely offering the silver and the gold for Ezra and Ezra's leadership of about 1,500 people as they return now, second installment, back to Jerusalem. In other words, he is being used by God to achieve the purposes so that Jerusalem can be rebuilt, setting in motion the events that will lead to Jesus Christ who will go to Jerusalem to die in our place for our sins. Is this extraordinary or what? Now you're thinking about this invisible hand, invisible yet involved. In verse 16, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, that is how your sovereign God operates and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. Now you are relating God's word to God's world. Years and years ago, before I studied theology, uh, my background was to study anatomy. And there was something that still stands out to me to this very day in an anatomy class that I had. At the start of the class, there appeared on the screen something that the professor who knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior wanted us to simply ponder. It was an artwork by Auguste Rodin entitled The Hand of God. Now, the hand of God is such, it's coming out of this marble piece. And within the hand is a male and a female, Adam and Eve. 
What captured my attention was that that was developed at the time when Darwinianism was spreading across Europe. And Rodin, who is not trained in the sciences, was wondering, how can I still instill in this culture the understanding that God is involved? And so what he did then, out of his marble, is that he created this, this incredible artistic work where this hand holds the first man and the first woman within his sovereign grip. And what triggered my memory of that moment in that classroom was that years later, while in New England, I noticed that in one of the newspapers in Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia area, a story about a group of students in a particular classroom in Philadelphia where the teacher had made a request from the local library if they could have a copy of the Hand of God available for them, speaking of Rodin's work. And after a careful search, the library responded, we are sorry, but the Hand of God is no longer available. And I thought not only about Rodin, but I thought about the culture of today and how all of this relates and how all of this fits. And now here's Ezra, and he's pondering that an unbelieving political leader is furnishing me with all the silver and all of the gold to return to build the temple. God is moving in his heart, as he would do with Caesar Augustus at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, what you want to do is to jump ahead with me to verse 25. It appears on the screen. You continue to ponder the connection between God's word and God's world here. And in 25... Artaxerxes now, he's been impacted by this believer in Artaxerxes' political courts. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, mark what comes next that is in your hand. Then he states, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. In other words, I want you to be judicially aware. And likewise, as we move into the four elections, you and I have got to be judicially aware. In verse 26... Ezra is being delegated to oversee a region where matters of life and death will have to be considered. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods, or, you see here, for imprisonment. 
Now you look at that and you ponder with me what God might be saying, what God is doing here, how God is directing here. And look what appears now on the screen. Now it's a little hard to distinguish, but you see just in the past weeks, the London Daily News has published a photograph of a man's take upon us across the skyline in the early morning hours in Portugal of what the photographer has now entitled the hand of God. It stopped everybody in traffic as they were looking upwards to the sky. For some it looked like an angry fist emerging out of the heavens. And they were wondering, what's the significance of it? And if you go online and you look up the daily news and so on, and you try to get a sense of this photograph coming out of Portugal, what you will find is an incredible give and take. Some are arguing, well, that's all coincidence, that God does not exist. Others are arguing that God is making a major statement and he's using natural means to make a supernatural Statement regarding the needs, the issues of this world. But when you've got the hand of God involved in orchestrating things, he's got a way to get a stop and think of nothing else, even if you are in Portuguese rush hour traffic. And likewise, no matter what it is that you're experiencing in your life right now, in the traffic of your life, you need to pause and ask, And how is the hand of God guiding and directing in things that I would not necessarily choose to put me on a path I would not necessarily want, to head in a direction that I have not necessarily designed, when all along, here we have the great designer at work, the hand of God. Now what you've done at this point is wisely connected word to world. You note how the hand of God is involved in our understanding of God's word, 1 through 10. You note how God's hand is involved in our understanding of God's world, verse 11 through 26. But now thirdly, in verses 27 and 28, I want you to notice how the hand of God is involved in our understanding of God's ways. Because his ways are not necessarily ours. Verse 27, now Ezra speaks, and he's just overtaken. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. Loop back to the opening verses when he thinks about his forefathers. Blessed be the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. He's just overwhelmed by all of this that a secular political leader would be able to do this. Verse 28. And who extended to me, he gets very personal here with his God, his steadfast love, Hebrew word hesed, loyal faithfulness, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, like those prior. Now you pause and you say, and likewise, Father, keep positioning people politically who love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to have high impact 
in the various political settings across this nation and this world. Here's an Ezra. He's saying, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty offices, I took courage. And then you mark what comes next. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then once again, we nod our heads as we think about that tremendous proverb. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. There would come a time when Jesus' critics were trying to put him on the spot. And in John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus responded, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Immediately, we are told, his opponents picked up stones in the next verse to stone him. But for some reason, commentators seem not to draw the link to verse 39 of John 10, where we are then told, and they sought to arrest him, speaking of Jesus, but he escaped from their hands. I have become acutely aware of an unusual ability. This pediatric neurosurgeon writes, a divine gift, I believe, of extraordinary eye and hand coordination. It's my belief that God gives us all gifts, special abilities that we have the privilege of developing to help us serve him and humanity. And the gift of eye and hand coordination has been an invaluable asset in surgery. And this gift goes beyond eye-hand coordination, encompassing the ability to understand physical relationships, to think in multiple dimensions. And now you and I think in multiple dimensions of the spiritual and physical realms. For in chapter 5, verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And in chapter 7, verse 6, the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him, and no one shall snatch him, you or me, out of his hand. Let's stand together.
So we see this invisible hand directly involved. Actively guiding. Actively protecting. Actively directing us. Forgive us when we think you're disengaged. Forgive us when we think it's got to be visible for there to be true involvement. But rather we praise you for the invisible hand that is directly involved, globally, nationally, regionally, personally. And Father, we praise you the security of being in the hand of the sovereign God, God the Father, God the Son, is guided by God the Holy Spirit to understand these words that you give us today. So, Father, may we take this and use this all for your glory. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.